Let's look to the Lord in prayer. So now, Father, what we want to do is to take seriously what matters most. We're going to center on the cross of Christ. We want to understand the, the gravity. We want to be able to feel the weight of it all. We want to understand the significance of it all. Give us, Father, what we need from you. So, Father, in these moments to come, we're praying that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see now Jesus. Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the various books throughout time that have impacted me, I would say high on the list would be Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan. And in this book, there's a particular setting where a man by the name of Christian is plodding through life, straining. He's carrying this incredibly heavy burden on his back. It's been night and day. He's weary. It's a merciless wait. Well, in Bunyan's allegory of Pilgrim's Progress, there's this incredibly moving scene where Christian finds the path to salvation. Picture this. So he's moving up this hill, and he's staggering. Till he reaches the peak. And then he sees this wooden cross. And just below it, an empty sepulcher. And then, as he gets closer to the cross, this extraordinary, this miraculous element occurs. The straps binding the weight, the heavy weight of his shoulders loosen. This load tumbles away into the sepulcher, never to be seen again. Has that been your experience in life? This is the extraordinary impact that the cross of Jesus Christ has upon those that are caught up in this journey of living. What I want to do with you is to keep the cross of Christ central. So we're going to draw out three significant aspects of the cross in these verses that I think have direct bearing upon the way we're going to go about approaching the bread and the cup in the moments to come. First comes out of verse 18, that as you and I, we reflect upon the cross of Christ, note here the distinctions that God makes. You're going to spot a division, a dividing line. You're going to be able to discern that there are polarities found in verse 18. 
there is the ultimate contrast of life found here in these verses. This verse alone. Note how it begins, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, it starts with the word of the cross, which means that that cross has something to say to you, something to say to me. It's, it's the word. Communicates something. Communicates something with regard to God paying the penalty for our sins. It says something about the way in which God has broken the power of our sins. Conveys these teachings at this cross. There is a word here. There's a message here. There's a teaching here. But what I want you to see in this contrastive verse, verse 18, is that there are two opposite, there are two polar opposite reactions to this word of the cross. For the word of the cross, for one camp, is folly. It's folly to those who are perishing. Now, in 2017, I was walking around in Corinth, and I was pondering Greek culture, and I was thinking about the wisdom that flowed from Athens, neighboring city. Their Greek goddess was Athena. Athena, the goddess of wisdom, false goddess, obviously. But they drank of the culture of wisdom. The opposite of being wise is to embrace folly. So now, what these individuals are communicating is that when they examine the message, the word of the cross of Christ, they view it as folly. They don't see the sovereignty of God. They don't embrace the idea of the sinfulness of humanity. They don't, therefore, take seriously that there's this chasm between God and us that would require God approaching us via the cross of Christ. They view it as folly. They would view what Christ did as simply unnecessary because the assumptionists were basically good people. I'm okay, you're okay, we're okay, God's okay with us. Assumption. So in their viewpoint, their worldview, the word of the cross is folly. But notice how the Apostle Paul, who, who ministered in Corinth for a year and a half, and you read about it in Acts chapter 18. We'll get there in our series. But notice here that this word of the cross, the view is folly, is viewed as folly to those who are perishing. So now, that is one side of the equation. There is this camp, there is this division, there is this polar stream away from God, and this is their worldview when it comes to the matter of the cross. Completely unnecessary. Assumption. Humanity is basically good. Flip side. Notice the word B-U-T, but it's one of the most important words in the Bible because whenever God speaks through the writer and he uses the word B-U-T, he is setting up a contrast for you. 
And so on one hand, on one side, we've got this camp. It's the perishing camp. We're of you, their take on the cross, it's folly. But they have to grapple with the word of the cross, nonetheless, and come to that conclusion. Flip side, this has to do with the Christian. It has to do with the believer. But, notice Paul includes himself at this point. He says, but to us. Doesn't say but to you, but to us. He's including himself there, humble man that he is. But to us who are being saved, in other words, in full-spectrum discipleship, there's this ongoing aspect of evangelism where unbelievers are, are crossing the threshold into saving faith in Jesus Christ. But to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Now, you and I, we might have thought that the natural word to use there would be the wisdom of God. That's what the culture drank up. The idea of wisdom. But instead, the Apostle Paul has, he has decided to utilize the phrase, the power of God. Why? First of all, culturally. In that time period, you see, Corinth, while it drank up the wisdom of prior eras, the Greeks, it was under Roman authority, and as while the soldiers made their way around Corinth, Paul was a tent maker, most likely making tents for, among others, Roman soldiers. They were introduced to the power of Rome. So you've got wisdom and power now in competition. On one hand, Greeks. On the other hand, Romans mingled together in this setting. Paul will brilliantly use both words. At this point, then, what he is doing when he says the power of God what he's saying to you, what he's saying to me, is that this is more than a worldview. This is not some alternative to Greek philosophy. No, this is the supreme sovereign word of God being spoken all times to all peoples. And you have to take seriously the cross of Christ. I've always loved that story from Chuck Colson in his book, Kingdoms in Conflict, where in the days of communism, where the Polish Prime Minister Jaruzelski had ordered crosses to be removed from classroom walls, students began to protest. Before long, the government relented, but insisted that the law of removal of crosses remain on the books. But, you see, there was a particular region in, in Poland, Garvalin, where the administrator decided that the law was the law and the crosses would be removed. And so he had seven large crosses removed from lecture halls where they had hung since the school's founding back in the 20s. What's interesting is that days later, Groups of parents entered the school and hung more crosses. The administration promptly had them taken down. Now try to picture this in modern America. The next day, two-thirds of the school's 600 students staged a sit-in. And when heavily armed police 
riot police arrived. The students were forced into the streets where they marched with crosses held high to a nearby church where they were joined by 2,500 other students. From nearby schools in support of the protest. Well, soldiers surrounded the church, but there were photographers on the inside taking pictures of the students holding crosses high above their heads, and these pictures were being flashed around the world. And when the pastor got up to deliver the message, his words were this. There is no Poland without a cross, quote, unquote. In other words, what God is saying through Christ's death and resurrection is that the ultimate display of power and the ultimate display of wisdom is found in the sovereign authority of God who oversees all. So now, you and I have to look at the contrast. And while political pundits look at, say, our culture today and say we're fragmented, what God would say, it's not so much fragmentation as it is sheer division. That there are two opposite ends of the polar spectrum. There's a dividing line, and the dividing line is the cross of Jesus Christ. And on one side are those who view the cross of Christ as folly and that what Jesus Christ did on the cross was unnecessary. They think they're okay. They think you're okay. They think even God is simply okay. But the flip side is that to those who are being saved, contrasted with that great word but, being saved, it's the power of God. The Greek word here is dunamis. We get the word dynamite from and here now, as you and I reflect upon the cross of Christ, your first aspect of the cross deals with the distinctions, or to put it, the division, the dividing line, the polarities that God, and not the culture, makes, God makes. Now, once we've established that, we're on then to the second aspect, and it flows out of 19 through 21, as you and I, as we reflect upon the cross of Christ, then notice furthermore the questions here that God poses, and they're going to come our way. But in order to get there, he starts off by drawing deep from the wills of the Older Testament of Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14, where Isaiah penned these words, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discernment the discerning I will thwart. Now, what is Isaiah saying, and why is Paul then referencing this? There are two sources of wisdom. There's a wisdom from above, and there's a wisdom from below. In the Greek culture at Corinth, they embraced the wisdom from below, and they tried to figure out what makes this world tick. And likewise, you and I, on a daily basis, we're moving around people that are trying to figure out what makes this world tick. Why are we experiencing what we are experiencing? Why am I experiencing what I am experiencing? Why am I even here? 
why question is part of the series of questions you ask when you're dealing with wisdom, the who, the what, the where, the when, the how, the whys of life. God is the answer to those questions. And now God takes lower wisdom and he overwhelms it with the uppercase wisdom. I would destroy the wisdom of the wise. To put it another way, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And so they might think they've got a wise strategy to deal on a personal level with the issues that they're facing on a daily basis. Or at a political level, people might say, Here's the strategy we need to take regarding fragmentation. And what God is saying, and I will, I will address this matter of discernment, the discerning I will thwart. So now, what do you do with this? What do you, where do you go with this? How do, you, how do you understand this? Think about this person here. One of my former professors, Dr. D.A. Carson, tells of a story in which there was a Christian who was talking to a young man who did not know Christ as Lord and Savior. And the Christian said to the young man, this said of him, I, I told him that Jesus was the solution to his problem. And he asked, what problem? Well, I told him Jesus could forgive his sins. And he wondered, why is that necessary? I told him that he could escape the fear of death. He told me that he never thinks about death. And then Don Carson says, now, he wasn't trying to be difficult. He was one of the most sincere students I've ever met. Okay, life is a spectrum. We think in this church, full spectrum discipleship. Where are people, are, are, where are they at on the spectrum of life? How do you address this? He's on the BC, not the AD side of salvation before Christ. I believe that what Paul is doing here is brilliant. He poses questions. We've got to get people to start rethinking their assumptions about God, about self. Am I okay? Why am I not okay? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Why am I facing what I'm facing? Is there, a, is there an answer to the bigger issues of life that I've yet to address? And so, we wisely begin to pose questions. You're doing that in your relationships view everybody you meet is somewhere on the spectrum. Well, now, what Paul now does is he poses what I'll call spectrum questions. The questions. He starts off with the first one. Where is the one who is wise? Now, for the Greeks at that time period, wisdom involved a well-ordered world view. They loved to be able to frame their views. 
Now, maybe you've got friends who like to go into thrift stores, and when they go into the thrift store, they are looking at pictures, but not for the picture's sake, but for the frame. They'll buy that picture and the frame, and they'll bring it home, and they'll remove the picture so then they can insert their own picture into that frame. Now, what the Greeks had done here was that they had framed a worldview without Christ as the picture. They have simply review, removed anything pertaining to Christ, but they've got this frame, and they have framed their views of this world through their own thinking, as I see happening today in today's culture. They talk worldview, but the question is, and who's, who's in the middle of the frame? Is Christ central, or has he been removed from that frame? So now, what Paul is doing is he's posing a question. You framers, where is the one who is wise? Well, well at this point then, he is beginning to get them to rethink, well, who should be in the frame? But now, likewise, you know, I've got to get people to start asking who should be framed. So a second question is posed. And you can see the subtle shift from the Greek po population to the Jewish population in Corinth, where is the scribe? Because the Greek word there, grammaticus, carries with the idea of somebody skilled in what I'll call the grammar of theology. The scribes. The scribes were the ones, of course, that, that had to deal with the, the wares of Jesus Christ at the time of Christ's birth. Where is this one born king of the Jews, you see? They were to know the scriptures. But it is possible to know the scriptures without knowing the Savior. And the purpose of knowing the scriptures is to come to know the Savior. Otherwise, we're dealing with religious unbelievers. And then when all is said and done, they are no different than secular unbelievers. They are in B.C. rather than A.D. territory. But you pose these questions. To the secular unbeliever, it's the first question. To the religious unbeliever, it's the second question. But now, a summary where is the debater of this age? No, did the Greeks love to debate? But then God poses this ultimate question here. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And he poses that as a form of a question to those who've got to grapple with matters of questions. And then in verse 21, in verse 21, he goes on to say, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, notice in 21, it says, For since in the wisdom of God, not in the wisdom of humanity, lowercase wisdom, but the wisdom of God, uppercase wisdom. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God. In other words, you cannot build a stairway to heaven. 
you can't ascend that stairway. We need the second member of the Trinity to descend upon that stairway. We can't make our way up to God. God, through the second member of the Trinity, makes his way downward to us. Since the world did not go, know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. He takes the word folly. That was their take, their view of the word of the cross. He's going to use it now evangelistically. But notice it reads, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. It does not read, it pleased God through the folly of how we preach. Why? Because they love debate. They love skilled rhetoric where people could stand on a platform and speak eloquently. Think of those that have, been impre have impressed you through the years of speaking with such eloquence. Well, the Greeks produced those kinds of people. But what you and I find here is that he does not use the how, he uses the what. In other words, he's interested in the content of the message, not the style of the message. He's not out to market. He's not out to billboard. He's out to communicate the cross. The ultimate what of what we preach to save those who believe. So now you and I realize at this point then that what God has done is that he has taken the people who have framed a worldview without Christ as the picture of what they need to focus upon and through a series of questions gets them to think about and what picture should be in the, your frame. How are you framing life? Once you and I grapple with that and once we think through seriously the way in which if you know Jesus Christ as Lord, and as Savior, you're posing questions to people who are on the, on the B.C. rather than the A.D. side, on full spectrum matters. You move then to what I'll call the third aspect of the cross, where you and I reflect upon the cross of Christ. We note now the attributes that God reveals. Attributes are the characteristics of God. Who he is, what he, his nature. Watch for what is revealed about God. Check out 22. Jews demand signs, and didn't they ever? I mean, they were peppering Jesus with, with, show me another sign. Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew 16, one came to test him. And they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Well, the Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom which was what both camps valued ethnically. What fascinates me is that it does not read, for Jews demand signs, but Greeks seek wisdom. He's lumping them together, Jew and Greek. Both need Jesus. Both have worldviews, but both have frames without picture of Christ in the middle. Here it comes. Again, he utilizes the word but. Once you've got this B.C. crowd of both religious unbelievers and secular unbelievers having now to rethink where they stand because of the questions that are being posed, Paul delivers the goods. 23. We preach Christ crucified. 
back to those two groups. Stumbling block to Jews because they didn't read their scriptures. They didn't read Isaiah 53 about a Messiah who had to come and suffer. And furthermore, folly to Gentiles, continuing to use that word that was normal in the Greek culture to describe those who lacked philosophical reasoning skills. But, there it is again, to those who are called, now there's sovereign grace, and here's God's grace for both Jew and Gentile, both Jews and Greeks, here come the attributes of the cross. The power of God and the wisdom of God, both on full display when Jesus died for our sins. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son in total control of the sovereign moving so that Jesus would, in a timely way, make his way to the cross of Jesus Christ, even using the political figures, whether it be a, an Augustus at the time of birth or Herod, Pontius Pilate at the time of death. But along with the power of God is the wisdom of God here, where God will take both means and ends. He establishes the perfect end, then he establishes the perfect means to get to that end, salvation for you and me. But what he is subtly doing now, Paul is, is that he's saying, hey, Greeks, you talk about Greek wisdom and you're aware of Roman power. Check this out. Wisdom and power. It's at the cross of Jesus Christ. So he brings this to a conclusion. He uses subtlety. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. There's a great difference between your beliefs and mine, Harry Ironside said to a neighbor. What's that? The neighbor responded. It's this. Your beliefs have only two letters, while mine have four. What do you mean? He asked. Well, your beliefs, yours has D-O. Mine, mine has D-O-N-E. You're asking, what can I do? What has been revealed at the cross is what Christ has done. It is finished. In 1959, Thomas Holving of New York's Metropolitan Museum purchased an ivory cross. It's from a Yugoslavian art collector. Had it stored in a Swiss bank. Thirty years later, something more was discovered. You see, that cross that was stored lacked a central figure, the body of Christ. In 1969, in New York City, a seven and a half inch tall figure of Christ was matched together 
with that cross. It was a perfect fit. Five holes drilled for it on the Met's cross. And the artist's design was such that once again, the Christ and the cross have been brought together. It's our responsibility to bring Christ and the cross together so that people in the spectrum of living understand the centrality of what Christ has done, dying for sins, put faith in Jesus alone for salvation. So we're thanking you, Father, for that cross, thanking you for the privilege of knowing you, thanking you for what you've revealed. We want to build a staircase to heaven, but Christ did descend a staircase to us, revealing your grace in such a way that powerfully impacts us for your glory. We thank you, and we give you all the praise in Jesus' name.